Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Take a look at your favorite pair of jeans. Maybe you bought them on Amazon or The Gap. Maybe the tag says made in Bangladesh or made in Sri Lanka, but do you know where they really came from? How many thousands of miles they crossed? Or the number of hands who picked, spun, wove, dyed, packaged, and shipped and sold them uh, to get to you. In her new book, Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment, entrepreneur, researcher, and advocate Maxime Beda follows the life of an American icon, a pair of jeans, to reveal what really happens to give us our clothes. Maxime Beda is the founder and director of the New Standard Institute, a think-and-do tank dedicated to turning industry into a force for good. Uh, she's a former lawyer and co-founder of the ethical fashion brand Zadie. She's an ambassador at the Rainforest Alliance and has spoken at the World Economic Forum, United Nations, and Clinton Global Initiative. Maxine Bidal, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So um, how did you uh, get into this? Uh, you've co-founded a, uh, a brand, but uh, I, I take it from uh, watching your TED Talk that uh, maybe you started to think about these issues as a consumer? Yeah, that's correct. I I started off thinking about them, you know, as a as a young woman living in New York with an overflowing closet um, and a feeling like I had nothing to wear. <laughs> um, and one day I just became uh, very frustrated and started looking at all of the um, tags of my clothing and ripping it all apart and um, not ripping the clothing, ripping the closet apart, I should say. Um, and I, you know, just started to try to understand what it is that I liked, what the material even meant, um, and that ended up being quite a quite a long journey. Um, the one you just uh, described in my bio, from um, working at the United Nations, working, um, then starting up um, my own company, and, and ultimately uh, writing a book on the subject. So in that TED Talk that I referenced, uh, you I'm not sure who you're quoting there, um, but, but you say we have reached peak stuff, which I think we can relate to. <laughs> yes, I think that was um, uh, somebody from Ikea, actually. And uh, I do think that we're all experiencing peak stuff. I mean, there's a significant percentage of Americans that use their garages um, for extra stuff and have no rooms for their cars. So I think we're all feeling that, and I think certainly during covid um, that we're spending more time, any of us at home, um, we're more acquainted with our stuff um, and the space it takes up, up takes up than ever. Um, when we think about the environment, I think we, I don't know, at least I don't think of uh, fashion, I don't think of clothes, but you say clothes, what is it, the number two polluter? Yeah, it's, it's hard to know kind of um, how to compare it. Uh, so I, I wouldn't say it's the number two two. Um, most polluting, uh, that's a statistic that has kind of been running around and we don't really know the source. But what I can say is the studies that have been done on the fashion industry is showing that it's anywhere from 4 to 10% of all greenhouse gas emissions globally. If you take even that conservative number of 4%, that would be more than uh, France, Germany, and the UK combined. So we tend, as you said, we tend not to think about our clothing as having a climate impact, but it has an enormous climate impact. And I think part of that um, lack of awareness is just that we think about emissions as things that kind of we more directly produce, like we kind of have envisions of cars and using fuel to, to, to run our cars. Um, and we don't tend to think about 
the um, factories, you know, that are halfway across the world that are, you know, consuming massive amounts of coal to produce our garment that we might not uh, wear more than a few times. Um, so, uh, uh, pollution, a problem, the environment, a problem, um, human rights and human cost, a problem. We'll get into that as well. Uh, maybe talk about how we got here, but, uh, you know, you talk about fast fashion and, uh, you know, from an economic perspective, um, and, and if you're in business school, I suppose, uh, it's, it, it's a miracle, right? It's, it's a great positive, but with a lot of costs, so maybe talk a little bit about how we got to fast fashion. Yeah, so fast fashion is a um, is a business model that came about like really popularized in in the U.S. starting kind of in the mid aughts, um, and that was uh, when I was uh, in university. And um, that's companies like uh, Zara and H and M and newer companies that are even kind of more um, fast disposable fashion like Boohoo and Shein. Um, which, if you're Gen Z, um, you'll you'll be familiar with, um, and and that's um, you know clothing that is the brand introduces new clothing depending on the fast fashion brand every week, every day, um, and is very heavily driven um, from a marketing perspective from social media. So you have influencers that are um, pushing these new products and getting um, us, the consumers, to. Um, by an ever-increasing basis. And so it's really shifted a generation from my uh, parents' generation, say, um, where a closet, you know, evolved with time to today where clothing can cost less than a cup of coffee. So, um, you know, as you're saying about business school, it's it's a very different business model, um, and it's having really disastrous consequences because as we increase our consumption, uh, we both put um, pressure on labor for lower wages so we can get those cheap prices to go even further down, um, and we increase the environmental impact that we have as we have those factories rolling on overdrive. And this, uh, of course, isn't just the fashion industry, right? It isn't just clothing. This seems to be where the economy is headed, right? Uh, you, you have a chapter that I'd like this title, More is More, Consumerism Goes Viral. Um, more and more and more, um, marketing is a part of this, but uh, I guess culture, um, yeah, yeah, it's marketing culture and, uh, social media. You know, I think there's been, um, healthy criticism in social media around kind of how it's, um, capturing our, uh, attention, um, and distracting us from our daily lives. Uh, but we haven't yet been thinking about how that, um, capturing attention is fueled um, by consumer companies. They are the marketers that um, pay the money uh, for these uh, social media companies. And that, and kind of together, the fashion companies, together with social media like TikTok, like Instagram, um, and the influencer economy around it are just fueling this consumption. If you speak to any psychologist, um, you know, they will tell you that the more cues you have for a um, the more you're going to do that behavior. So if the cue is, you know, that you're passing by a fast food restaurant, you're, you'll end up eating more of that fast food. And if the cue is you're stuck at home and you're on TikTok or Instagram and you're constantly being exposed to new products, you're going to end up buying them. 
And as a consumer, you know, if your clothing is uh, attractive um, and cheap, uh, uh, you know, what's not to like, right? But uh, your your book's telling us what, what's not to like about this. Um, so tell, talk about some of the pressures, one of which is this, you know, if, if you're going to charge lower, lower price and there's competition for that, um, that's enormous pressures. And that, that's led to decimation of uh, U.S. Uh, made clothing, right? And it has to go overseas, cheaper labor. Yeah, so, you know, when when kind of globalization as it's been structured today was sold to us um american um you know the american citizenry um you know we were told that we would get these great um cheaper products uh what we weren't told is we we might lose jobs um in in the process um and on the on the other side of the world you know um they were told they would get more jobs uh but uh we're not exactly um told um, the quality of jobs that they would that they would be getting. So, the fashion industry, because the way we make clothes has not changed considerably even in the past 100 years. So it's still people sitting behind sewing machines that produce our garments. Um, that hasn't changed. Um, it's mostly women that are producing these garments, and it's some of the lowest wage wa- uh, lowest excuse me lowest wage labor globally. Um, and so we've gone from a situation where in the 1960s, over um, 90% of garments um, that were worn in the U.S. were made in the U.S. to today where that number is less than 2%. So we've offshored our jobs, um, and we've been told that we get, you know, the lower-priced garments, which we have. But when, you know, you speak to customers, as I've had the benefit of being able to do for research for the book, um, you know, which echoed my own experience being frustrated with my closet. People don't actually, you know, once they um, have an opportunity to think about it, don't love um, the stress of all the stuff that they have. And I, um, for the book, I have to speak to um, a psychologist who's researching this, and she talked about how the cortisol levels of um, women in particular, that, um, that they have a hard time kind of reducing their stress throughout the day, um, because of the anxiety of having um, so much stuff. So really, you know, we're told to kind of want more and more things, and we think that we do, but underneath that, just underneath that layer, is um, is a real stress about having so much physical, so many physical goods. Um, I I want to address that now, maybe logically Mm -hmm. it'd be later in the program, but um, so you get rid of the stuff i guess you throw it away or or you give it to charity um both of those are somewhat problematic right yeah so if you throw it away um you're uh, creating an environmental problem in the the landfills that um are being created to um keep all of our stuff and that um ends up uh, causing creating sort of greenhouse gas um emissions as those products very, 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 very slowly um, decompose. Um, and then if you give them away, um, you know, we're, we're taught, you know, that give away our clothing or to give a, donate goods, that it's something that we can feel really great about. But the researchers, um, and, and in my book, I um, traveled to Ghana, which is um, a significant, um, to Accra, the capital, which is a significant secondhand clothing um, market in Western Africa. Um, and you see that um, we think we're giving a product away, but what ends up happening is um, 
the clothing that is donated, very little is actually resold by the donation companies. The bulk of that is headed um, to the developing world, to countries like Ghana, to cities like Accra. Um, and what researchers are finding there is that um, a significant part of that clothing never actually gets resold. And so what we end up doing is just, uh, quote, donating our garments only to throw them away um, in the developing world where they have even less capacity to deal um, with our waste. Uh, and so when I was in Akron visiting the landfill um, where the, our clothing ends up, it was actually um, on fire that day. And it was on fire spewing out very dangerous um, chemicals and um, greenhouse gas emissions in the process. And it was because there was um, a, a contamination in the waste that was brought in. Because of all of our excess textiles, the safety measures that they once had in place um, had to be kind of thrown out the window. And so the entire dump um, was on fire when I was there, um, leading to, you know, enormous uh, health and environmental impact. One of the problems is that we're, we're not so much wearing cotton or whatever it might be, right? Um, we're wearing synthetics more and more. Yeah, so with the rise of this kind of fast disposable fashion has been the rise of um, synthetic textiles, uh, um, synthetic uh, fibers. So if you look in your closet or even look at the tags of what you might be wearing right now, um, you know, today the most significant fiber source is synthetic um, material and the, the biggest um, main fiber being polyester, which most people don't know is, um, is plastic. Um, and it's a fossil fuel-based plastic. Um, so, you know, we think we're getting these cheaper products, um, but these products have significant uh, environmental um, repercussions. It both create, um, uses a lot of greenhouse gas- gases excuse me, to create those fibers. And then um, when we wash the synthetic fibers, we create uh, microplastic pollution, which, um, you know, is being found literally everywhere in the air we breathe at the bottom of the ocean, the top of mountains. Um, you know, it, we researchers are really just beginning to see the health effects of all of this um, microplastic that just isn't going away and keeps mounting. And um, apparel is a significant source of that microplastic pollution. If you just joined us, we're talking with Maxine Bedard. Uh She is author of a new book called Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. And uh, we are going to take a break. We'll be right back. Spanish language programming on Utah Public Radio is supported by our members and the USU Office of Global Engagement, fostering diversity, inclusion, and cultural awareness by supporting international students and scholars and facilitating study abroad opportunities. Information at globalengagement.usu.edu. Did you know that mental health therapy can be just as effective when delivered remotely rather than in person? Acceptance and commitment therapy, a common treatment for mental health challenges such as anxiety and depression, is being delivered through a web app to individuals with limited access to services. This online therapy is easy to access and low cost. Many of us are experiencing a strain on our mental health during this COVID-19 pandemic, and those online tools can help mental health to flourish and can target specific issues as well. When many in-person services have been suspended, remote delivery technology helps provide support to those who need it. 
This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians. Located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. We're back on Access Utah with Maxine Bida. I'm Tom Williams. So we're in conversation with Maxine Bida for the hour. And our thanks to her. Uh, the new book is Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. Maxine Bedaz is an entrepreneur, researcher, and advocate. And in the book, she follows the life of an American icon, a pair of jeans to reveal what really happens to give us our uh, clothes. I want to get back into talking about uh, the environment. Uh, of course, we get into talking about the human cost here as well. Uh, but here at the beginning of this next, the second segment, um, I guess jeans, that's kind of the, the iconic garment, right? Is that why you chose that, to, to follow that all the way through its life cycle? Yes, that's that's right. The, um, the pants I'm wearing today and jeans and um, most every day. Uh, and I think, you know, it's, um, it's a garment that uh, most of us have, um, and it cuts across, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, it has a uh, very deep um, history. It's kind of uh, iconic of um, Americana and represented, you know, in the 60s, independence. Um, and, and everything that was supposed to be uh, great about the United States. Um, and now, you know, it is, it's uh, really a, a global commodity at this stage. Um, and, you know, with, with the story of jeans, of course, it's um, the story of cotton, um, and the story of cotton um, helps us understand our own history um, in the U.S. It helps us understand um, the, 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 its ties towards uh, slavery, um, and then as we kind of track its progression today and how clothing is produced today, how those ties um, continue um, in our kind of global uh, global clothing production. I wonder, we've talked about kind of the, the big, the macro, right, the, the economic model, mm-hmm. fast fashion, et cetera. I wonder if you take us just briefly, um, you know, through, uh, you know, how a typical garment Yep. gets made and, uh, you know, circulates around, gets distributed, and it comes back to us. And, and then, of course, yeah. the, the, end re- the end result, probably a landfill somewhere, right? That's right. Um, so, you know, if we think about the beginning of a pair of jeans, uh, let's talk about the, the cotton first, because that will still probably be the primary um, fiber. Um, you know, that cotton can be grown in, in the book. I uh, go to Texas because the United States um, is still a significant producer of cotton globally, um, along with China and India. Um, and from uh, there, it might uh, go to a place like uh, China, which is where uh, still the bulk of textiles are produced globally. Um, it will go, it will uh, go on a ship as uh, cotton. It will enter China. Um, it will go to a textile mill, so that cotton will be clean, um, it will be spun, and I think the best way to think about textile production um, is if you think about, uh, well, I'm a woman and I have curly hair and I have to blow dry my curly hair to make it straight. So that's essentially what is happening in the first phases of textile production is um, the fibers are all being put in the same direction um, and they are then twisted into uh, a yarn and then they are uh, woven or knit into a textile, and then they are 
um, dyed and treated um, for their final uh, color and usage. Um, and I think the, the most important kind of visual thing to think about um, in the textile mill is just how many different steps that is and how each step is very energy intensive. So dyes don't naturally jump onto um, uh, fabric. Uh, it takes a very high heat to uh, make that process work. And so each step takes a lot of energy, and the energy is um, sourced from coal, which is why um, it's such a significant contributor um, to climate change, the apparel industry, because of what's happening at the mills. And then you go from the mill, so out, out of the mill comes your finished textile, um, and that might be shipped someplace else. Um, in my book, I go to Bangladesh, which is now um, a very significant denim producer globally, where it will be cut and sewn um, into the garment. Um, and Bangladesh has become a popular sourcing place because wages are even lower there than they are in China. And so the fashion industry is really kind of on this race to the bottom to find the cheapest um, labor uh, globally instead of trying to lift up wages. Um, and once you have your final garment, um, that would be um, in, let's say, a place like Bangladesh, you would have um, the fabric coming in, in the door. There would be um, cutting machines that would um, cut out the pattern of each of the components of the denim. Um, denim is a fairly straightforward um, product to make, but if you look at a pair of jeans, every stitch, every seam, every rivet is hand done. Um, there, you know, it's, uh, we, we don't tend to have visual, uh, visuals of these things because they um, are not produced anywhere near us, but everything is still um, by uh, a person, usually a woman, sitting at a sewing machine. And so they have very um, long production lines at these um, uh, garment centers. And um, at the beginning are all the different pieces, the different components of the garment. And at the end of this production line of, say, 30 people at a sewing machine will be the final garment. Then um, that garment will be sent to a distribution center. And in the book, um, I focus in on Amazon just because um, Amazon is, um, in terms of number of shoppers, the largest uh, U.S. Um, apparel retailer. Um, and... There, it's a, quite a similar system of labor as it is with the garment workers. Um, every um, moment is um, timed and captured, and the, the name of the game for um, the distribution center is to maximize the output of worker. Um, and so everything is automated, and you have uh, men and women um, either walking around a distribution center or the facilities that have robots, they will be climbing up and down a ladder, up and down a ladder, up and down a ladder, up and down a ladder um, the whole day um, so that when you click buy, um, that uh, garment is uh, going to be um, unpacked, repacked for you and, and sent on its way. And then <laughs> um, when you receive the garment, um, you... Um, may or may not enjoy it for a few or many wears. Um, and once you are done, um, the, um, still most of us are throwing away our garments, so that will end up either in landfill or a waste-to-energy facility where it will be burned for energy, which still has significant environmental implications. <clears throat> or you're going to donate it, 
which um, then starts the process that I described earlier, where it will be um, uh, mostly sent to the developing world, where they will attempt to resell the garment, um, and otherwise it will ultimately end in a landfill or in an open burn um, situation um, in those areas that have less um, developed capacity for waste management. Yeah, that's, that's that's quite the journey. And, you know, as consumers, we don't think, really, I don't think about any of it. <laughs> we, we think, right, is it is it fast, is it cheap, and I'm, am I going to like it? Um, I want to um, maybe uh, drill down a little bit on a couple of these stops in the journey of this of, of this pair of jeans. Um, so you talk about uh, dyeing and weaving factories in China, uh, where chemicals that are banned in the West are just, on the factory floor. They're draining into waterways that eventually go to the family farm. Yep, that's right. Um, and I um, saw my own eyes when I um, was traveling in China for research for this book. Um, and, you know, when um, I live in New York, I'm looking at uh, the Hudson River right now, um, and uh, it's it's blue. We don't tend to think of um, the rivers around Manhattan as particularly clean, but it still looks blue. Um, when you go to uh, industrial um, towns in China, um, the rivers are varying degrees of black. Um, and so that is, is what I saw there. I would um, go to a, a denim wash house uh, where um, once, um, denim is cut and sewn as a wash to get the finishes that we like to see on our jeans. Um, and when I um, walked out of the factory um, and it was adjacent to um, a small river, I just saw the effluents, which is the chemicals um, coming from the factory directly into the river. Um, and then if you can just picture in your mind's eye, this um, chemical, like oil glistening river um, was then um, adjacent to it were um, plots of agricultural land. Um, and, you know, then going and doing desk research, um, it's pretty devastating the um, health impacts that people who consume the um, products that utilize that water um, have. So it's, you know, we've moved production, you know, we've, uh, we've developed <laughs> um, uh, infrastructure like the Environmental Protection Agency, which regulates chemical usage in the United States um, only to export production um, of chemical-intensive uh, products, um, and that's having, uh, you know, devastating consequences globally. You've just joined us. Uh, we are talking with Maxine Bedal. Uh, she is author of the new book, Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. Uh, so you talked with, in Bangladesh, uh, you talked with a woman uh, called Rima. She's uh, working in one of these garment factories. Uh, this is just incredible. You you say she earns $100 a month. That's with um, overtime. Yep, that's with her maximum um, overtime. And, you know, I went to visit Rima in her home, which is about the size of my New York bathroom. Um, and living in New York, my bathroom is already um, not particularly large. Um, in that, in her home, um, I think I could probably put my um, hands out and, and touch, just about touch both walls. Um, in the home live four people, her, her husband, and her two children. 
Um, and this is what, you know, uh, working uh, overtime as much as possible um, afforded um, Rima. You know, when I, I spoke, you know, I, I tried very much in um, interviewing garment workers to not try to presuppose that I know what their life is like. Um, and maybe, you know, I tried to at least leave space that she might be content, um, you know, living in where she was. But, um, you know, she has a, a tin roof, and it is Bangladesh is a very uh, rainy place. Um, so just even getting to fall asleep, you know, can be difficult. Um, and uh, the wages, you know, and particularly during COVID, I did my research before COVID, but um, subsequently um, since COVID, um, with garment production um, cutting back so dramatically and so quickly, um, the workers have been paid not at all. Um, and so, you know, you know, but when I was speaking um, to Reem, you know, I just asked her, what is she thinking about as she goes about her day as she's on the factory floor? And there was some, you know, kind of um, confusion in the, in the question, and I, um, I didn't really understand, you know, what was happening with the, um, between her and the translator. And <clears throat> basically she didn't understand what I, what I was asking because she said, I don't, I don't have time to think. I'm just thinking, go faster, don't make a mistake, go faster, don't make a mistake, go faster, don't make a mistake. Um, you know, and then you go and speak to psychologists about what, that type of um, pressure and um, the really dehumanizing where you, you know, you are literally being asked to operate like a machine only to be replaced by one. Um, Kind of what that does to one's mental health, not, you know, not just the low wages, but the actual type of work that um, garment workers like Rima are expected to do um, and, you know, distribution workers as well are expected to do. Um, And, you know, I, you know, after, you know, beyond um, what does she think about her work? And she, you know, her response was that, you know, she saw it as a prison. Um, and I think I think we can do better than that. You, uh, you point out that the garment and sex industries have a symbiotic relationship in many places around the globe. But uh, talk about that a bit. Yeah, so um, this happened in my um, reporting in Sri Lanka. Um, I was speaking to another garment worker there, um, and she described um, her work, and she said that um, she has to do day labor. Um, That's because she has, um, like um, many garment workers, she's an um, immigrant um, in Sri Lanka uh, from the north into the, the south where the capital is. Um, and she has to um, see her parents who have an illness and had to have um, the flexibility to take, like, a day off in the year where, you you know, you just don't have that flexibility when you're um, a full-time worker. And so, um, like in the United States, the, that kind of um, sort of gig economy, for lack of a better word, uh, is expanding internationally and, and in Sri Lanka as well. And so in describing her day, she said, um, you know, there are, um, there's a garment production happens uh, significantly in these export processing zones, which have special tax incentives for um, you know, creating these manufacturing centers. And so the women tend to uh, live um, around the export processing zone, and they all um, collect, uh, group together in the morning. Um, there'll be a van that um, picks them up. Those are called manpower agencies. 
Um, and they, um, you know, um, this woman described how she would, um, you know, go to work. And I said, well, th- it, it must be good that you, you know, can do this day labor so it provides flexibility for you to see your family when you need to. And she said, well, um, actually, and um, uh, she said, sometimes we don't go to the um, there, you know, we're told once we get in the van that there isn't work at the factory that day, um, and instead we'll be taken to the massage parlor. And I, um, it was an incredibly hard interview, and I just I asked the um, translator, I said, does that mean what I think that it means? And so she um, asked um, the garment worker, and, it, you know, the answer was, was yes. And I, I you know, as a as an interviewer, I it was hard. <laughs> it was hard. You know, you don't. Um, it was very difficult um, to you know to to have a response um, to to an answer you know like that, um, and that you know that has become because it's women's work and because it's the lowest paid um, labor. Um, it kind of, you know, ends up not being a surprise that sex work and garment work have a have a close relationship because if a woman has nothing else to sell, um, you know, she may be forced to sell her body. Uh, so the, the garment uh, then arrives at the distribution center for a lot of uh, folks shop at Amazon, right? Uh, you talk about... Uh, Amazon, uh, the the health problems that uh, workers, including young workers, develop, kind of this phenomenon of uh, you you work so you don't you're not replaced by a robot, right? But you're kind of working like a robot. Um, th- this statistic just uh, jumped out at me. The turnover rate uh, you note at Amazon mm-hmm. is one hundred point nine percent. How that one hundred point nine percent? I had to check that a few times. Um, because I didn't even know, understand how that was possible. Um, but, you know, essentially what it means is that you are re- more than replacing your workforce every year. Um, and, you know, um, when I first, you know, did the interviews, you know, it, it sounded just crazy how, you know, one of the women would say she had a class of 20 hires. Um, she was, you know, one of two after only a couple of months. Um, and, you know, it's, it's such um, challenging uh, work. I think just the, the work itself and then in speaking to the, the people that work at these distribution centers, um, the, the how, like how brainless it is is also very um, challenging to, to one's human brain. Um, and in that respect, you know, the, the work of the garment workers and the work of the Amazon workers were very similar. They're, they're both being timed by the, you know, by the, by the second on what their work product is um, and expected to um, maximize it and have, you know, consequences if they don't. Um, and, you know, um, along with that, I think, you know, Amazon is uh, lauded for their great health insurance, which they do have great health insurance, but the people who work there just mentioned how much they had to utilize it um, just because of how physically demanding um, it is to work at uh, you know a facility like that, and and I think to to me then in um, looking at the story of jeans, what um, I think was 
a, a very kind of dev- devastating realization is that this mechanized labor, this idea that you have these industrial experts that time labor um, and ensure peak efficiency um, started and, uh, you know, really grew in popularity on um, pl- plantations, um, you know, that were run by enslaved labor. Um, and so we still have these type of um, conditions um, still today, this, this mechanized labor system that started off in, um, in the times of slavery. If you just joined us, we were talking with Maxine Bedoff. She is author of a new book. It's called Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. She is entrepreneur, researcher, and advocate, um, founder and director of the New Standard Institute, a think-and-do tank dedicated to turning industry into a force for good. She's a former lawyer and co-founder of the ethical fashion brand Zadie. Uh, we'll have more following this break. Support for UPR comes from our members and Spirit Goat Soap, celebrating summer with a variety of gift sets made with handcrafted soaps, balms, and bath products with options for all skin types, including sensitive skin. Located at 28 Federal Avenue in Logan. Information at spiritgoat.com. Support also comes from Silicon Slopes Magazine, focused on Utah tech, business, and startups, supporting causes that affect us all. Information about upcoming events and advertising in the magazine at siliconslopes.com, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works, Kate Burton and Matthew Reese honor the centenary of Welsh poet Dylan Thomas in our brand new production of his famed Play for Voices. The shops in mourning, the welfare hall in widow's weeds, and all the people of the lulled and dumbfound town are sleeping now. Under Milkwood by Dylan Thomas, next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Friday night at 9, here on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're back with Maxine Beda. She is author of Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. So I want to, in this last segment, to get into some solutions, and you do offer some some tips and some, some suggestions. Uh, first of all... Um, you point out that uh, it takes it takes more than one company, right? You point out that Levi's uh, tried to stick to a responsible model, uh, you know, uh, make everything in the U.S., uh, prioritize worker welfare, um, but that didn't work. Yeah, it's, it's you know, the, the fashion industry is, you know, a good metaphor for the rest of where industry is and this, you know, Go, looping back to the beginning of our conversation, to this profit-maximizing um, uh, world in which we live, in which you know the this big business school language that um, is taught and kind of assumed that we pursue, which is that a company's um, aim and objective is to make most money as humanly possible, um, is going to have these devastating consequences, especially in a world in a kind of low-regulated regula- world um, where you can just have this race to the bottom without any consequences. And so I think we have to just um, take stock of uh, where we are um, and kind of what, what aims we are actually trying to pursue. Um, and, and, you know, now I think is a, is a very good time to uh, rethink that and kind of what type of jobs do we want to be growing um, what does a good job mean, and, and how can we um, pursue um, policies that create good jobs? Um, and so I think that's kind of um, 
one area is, you know, in, in the regulatory um, world is when we created globalization, and uh, I say we, it wasn't me, I, <laughs> I wasn't around then, but when globalization was, you know, first really stitched together, um, you know, companies um, lobbied to have to not include environmental or social protections um, or labor protections into international trade agreements. And we can do that. We can insert those clauses so that we're not creating this race to the bottom so that we didn't just fight to have the EPA or fight to have basic labor protections in the U.S. like the weekend, which is women garment workers in the U.S. that fought for that, um, only to um, disregard all of that in an international context. Um, and so that's kind of one area is, from a policy perspective, rebuilding those, um, creating those global standards. Um, and that's something, you know, as a lawyer, it's, it's, a, uh, it's very possible. <laughs> um, it's not an impossible task. It's just the um, political will to make that happen. And so, the, you know, the, the aim and part of telling the story of the book is to just show that, yes, this is a problem, but it's a, it's a solvable one. If we would have uh, better working conditions for folks who make our garments, would we not have to accept higher prices? Do you think that's, uh, you know, do you think collectively we would do that? So there's been some research actually into this, um, and it was research out of Sweden, and they looked at um, H&M, and um, I don't have the numbers right off the top of my head, but I think it was something like um, if uh, a, a fast fashion player like H&M were to play, pay a living wage for their garment workers, it would increase the price of a T-shirt by about 5 or $0.10. Cents. So this isn't a massive jump in prices. Um, you know, it's, it's really, um, uh, I would say, a very reasonable um, uh, price adjustment. I think we do, you know, for, for um, people who are really seeing clothing in the same way as a disposable cup of coffee that, you know, they'll wear it once, um, maybe twice, and get rid of it. That type of, um, you know, shopping, I think, can never be consistent with um, a sustainable planet. But we're not talking about, you know, never buying anything again. It's just becoming kind of more reasonable. Uh, so, what, yeah, mindset change, right, is what you're saying. Um, so tell us a little bit more about what that mindset should be. Obviously, we're not, you know, yeah, don't don't treat uh, clothing like a cup of coffee. Um, but uh, buying fewer, yeah, yeah, buy, buying fewer garments, what? Yeah, so, you know, it's, um, it's the, the, we, we have to kind of turn the, the tide around. And so in the past um, 10 and 15 years, we've uh, doubled the amount of clothing we uh, have and worn it uh, half as much. And, you know, I think, you know, going back to the earlier part of our conversation, what was most interesting to me, because that's where I started, was my own frustration with my closet. You know, having all of this stuff doesn't make us feel like we're better dressed. Um, you know, it's very trend-driven. It's not, you know, we're, we're kind of taught to not be, to not even think about it. And so, you know, I ended up as, as a consumer of fast fashion with clothing that didn't really fit me, didn't really make me feel good, was physically uncomfortable to wear. Um, and I was not alone after I spoke to, you know, many other um, shoppers, you know, that are consistently um, pushed a message of, of consumption. 
Um, and so, you know, it's ultimately, it's really not a drawback to reduce our consumption. It's a very empowering one. It's saying to a company, like, you are not going to dupe me into selling something I don't want. I'm going to, you know, when I buy something, it's going to be because I actually want it. Um, and so it's not a, a sacrifice at all. Um, it's uh, so much better. Um, I, you know, I feel like I'm much more in control of my closet and my purchases. Uh, so, as consumers are, uh, how can we tell if a company is doing better than other companies? I, I know I, I pulled up uh, the company you have co-found, Zadie. Uh, you talk about, uh, the, at least on the website, you talk about transparency and traceability. Yeah, it's very challenging. Um, from a consumer standpoint today, it's incredibly challenging to um, be able to decipher, you know, greenwashing from a, a true commitment to sustainability. Um, so I think as, um, as consumers, as citizens, we can uh, voice our concern. We can reach out to brands and ask them about what they are doing, um, you know, through email or through Twitter um, or through a letter. Um, but from a personal shopping um, perspective, I think the, the most important thing to do is to, uh, and the most sustainable thing you can do is, is not to buy the product, to know whether you want the product to begin with. And so regardless of how it's being marketed towards you, um, kind of um, instead of trying to decipher what is greenwashing and what isn't, um, best to be led with, oh, I really love this thing. Um, and if you do love it, then you will, you know, uh, probably wear it more, um, and how often you are wearing the garment is actually the biggest driver of its sustainability um, or not. What about uh, those clothes already, uh, you know, filling up the closet? What uh, maybe you're not wearing anymore? What? How best to dispose of those? Yeah, it's that's a challenging one, and I, I think that you know we are all we all find ourselves in this in this space and and i think we we don't want to be too much driven um by guilt right so um there isn't a perfect way to um get rid of our clothing i think if the you know the konmari method which has become very um popular about finding joy in our things um and getting rid of them if they don't give us joy um i think is a is a good starting point um but i think as we um, get rid of our things. And I still think the best thing to do is to donate our garments because the donation center at least can um, potentially get some use out of it. Um, is that as we are um, giving our things away, that we um, take a moment, you know, to recognize the um, amount of um, material and work that was put into that garment. Because I think if we just are a little bit more aware of what goes into our things, um, we can slow down that consumption and really enjoy the things that we have. You also talk about, again, going to, to macro, um, I, I suppose, uh, you know, supporting politicians who would work on these issues, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we, we, are, we are so trained to... Um, you know, to see that sustainability is in our own, you know, tackling climate change is our own individual actions. It's really going to be um, our political decisions. And so, you know, in the same way that you can speak to a company and ask what they are doing with regard to sustainability, ask your legislators, what are they doing 
um, to control emissions that are happening not just in the U.S., but outside of it, embodied in the products that we purchase. Um, because, you know, that is the work that still needs to be done. It is not yet happening. It's um, part of the work that we want to get involved in at the New Standard Institute um, is advancing that type of policy that um, can ensure that any product that is sold, it's not us, the consumers that will have to get a PhD in sustainability just to uh, make a, a smart purchasing decision, um, but it's happening on a government level. Um, and so, but in order for that policy to actually pass, we need to engage our legislators and ask them um, what they are doing about it. Finally, I'd, I'd like to, to ask folks, we, we, you know, we spend a better part of an hour here discussing this topic, very important, big topic, um, a lot of information. What's the top takeaway that uh, you would have people listening to this uh, take away? What's, what's top of mind? Yeah, so the, in, in telling this story about the, the challenges of the industry, it's really to show that we have so much more power than we are led to believe. Um, and, um, and um, you know, that, that's the, the biggest takeaway is that we can exert our power by asking brands. We can exert our power by our own personal shopping decisions. We can exert our power by engaging with organizations, you know, like the New Standard Institute, like, you know, asking our um, legislators what they are doing about this. And it is when we use our consumer voice, our citizen voice, um, that that we can make these significant shifts. And so that that is the most important takeaway, um, is yes, understand the challenges that there are, but that we are the ones um, that will be able to fix it and that it doesn't require everybody doing the right thing. It requires a few voices um, to speak up to, to start making these shifts. Well, we've been talking with Maxine Bedaz. She is an entrepreneur, a researcher, advocate, and her new book is out. It's called Unraveled, The Life and Death of a Garment. Maxine Bedaz, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. While today's roads are paved, the dusty roads of the early 1900s caused major health and cleanliness concerns for Utah's city dwellers. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. During the early 1900s, Box Elder County's town Corinne was growing fast. More traffic along the dirt roads meant horses and wagons kicked a thick layer of dust into the air. Clouds of earth poured into homes through windows and doors, sometimes making interior spaces practically unlivable. Summers were especially rough, and requests from residents flooded in for sprinkling wagons to pack down the earth and prevent dust from spreading. Urban dwellers were impacted by the dirty air, but the amount of water needed to curb the problem was significant. Water wagons, massive wooden tanks on four wheels, were pulled by two horses through the main thoroughfares of Corinne and other Utah towns. Drivers sat perched atop a spring seat, controlling the flow of water with foot pedals. The tanks sprinkled water along the earth, 
helping to pack down the dirt and prevent large clouds of dust from infiltrating homes and harming the quality of life in developing towns. When the driver needed to refill the tank, he would simply find the nearest fire hydrant and use a fire hose to fill the barrel. Water wagons required hundreds of gallons of water, and concern over water supply dominated conversations about road maintenance in local papers. Ordinances about sprinkling and refilling water wagons attempted to control some of the water usage, but during the dry summer months, residents complained the roads were still too dusty. Women complained that dirty air prevented them from hanging their laundry out to dry. Local business owners felt that dusty air was simply the price to pay for industry, arguing that it was, quote, better to have business in dust than solitude and clean air. Within just a few decades, the struggle over sprinkling wagons resolved itself. Packed dirt gave way to paved roads, eliminating the problem of dust and allowing for easier travel as the automobile became more widely available. However, this struggle was just the beginning for Utahns learning to navigate the delicate balance between water usage, human health, and growing industry. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSU-FM, Logan.